Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Joanna Williams. She's a columnist for Spiked, which is an online magazine, and the director of Keo, an independent think tank uh, based in the UK. Uh, she's written a couple of recent web pieces for City Journal on the publishing industry and on the gender pay gap, and she's the author of How Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy tolerance, and reason. Joanna, thanks very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, So let's begin with your book, uh, which is an entrant in this uh, new discipline, which we might call wokeness studies. Um, You actually start in a place that I haven't seen anybody else start in 1920s African-American culture, in which to be woke was to possess a kind of political consciousness attuned to the very real oppression that blacks uh, then faced in America. But over time, you write in the book, the concept changed. Uh, So we might say in contemporary woke parlance that it was appropriated by a very different group of people and put in the service of entirely different and uh, dubious ends. So why don't you just give us the, you know, the short history and evolution of wokeness as you see it and as you describe it in the book? Yeah, I think you've done a really good job of of summing up, if you like, the first um, 80 or so years of of the history of the word woke there. And um, really up until the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, that's exactly uh, where we're at, that transition that you've just described of a word that was uh, really um, African-American street parlance, uh, not not even terribly political. I think uh, to to stay woke was, was really to, in a very genuine sense be be safe uh, keep safe if you like to to keep a lookout for your own safety to be on guard to for very real dangers we need to um add at, at that point in time um but but it's towards the end of the 1990s early 2000s when the word really began to take on a, a much broader political um motivation and um it was appropriated as you say by really by white liberals uh, and, and black liberals as well, but but to uh, as, as particularly by the nascent Black Lives Matter movement, as a much broader sense of of being politically correct, you might say, uh, of being aware to injustices and um, uh, kind of kind of having this political awareness, uh, and that's uh, where the word stuck until about kind of 2015, 2016, where it really exploded into popularity in that usage. So you saw the the kind of Jack Dorsey, boss of Twitter, uh, taken to the stage at a conference with the, the Twitter little bluebird logo and the slogan, um, stay woke on it. And these were the kind of people, these elite people who were very proudly woke at that point in time. And Obviously, when that word that they appropriated, that they were very, very proud to be associated with, was then used back against them to describe the coming together of a particular set of beliefs, which I'm sure we'll dig down into more, but but around race, around gender, around identity in particular, uh, when that word was then used to, to, to kind of describe back to them how they saw themselves. 
they took offense and um, didn't like the word woke being used in that way. So really since I would say from about 2016, 2017 onwards, the word's been used essentially as a, a political football with people on the left, some people on the left saying, oh, it just means to be nice, to be kind. It just means being a good person, which I, I think is incredibly disingenuous. You know, I, I think it means far, far more than that. And anyone who really thinks being woke is just about being a nice, kind person uh, is, is, like I say, either a liar or incredibly naive. Um, and it's it's been used by the right to really uh, point out um the authoritarian nature, if you like, and the often kind of hypocritical nature behind some of the um, woke values that people like to espouse. You, 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 a lot of these ideas associated with the, the woke phenomenon take their starting point from an American political history and cultural history. So slavery, Jim Crow, um, or you know, more more policy driven, the idea of closing the, the black white wealth gap or cracking down on racist policing. Um, you know, what's striking is that these, these particular things don't necessarily make a lot of sense in the context of other countries. So in, in your home of the United Kingdom, it has its own unique history, very distinct from the United States. Um, you know, it's, it's current circumstances with regard to policing and, and crime, I think are, are fair. It's fair to say different from those of the United States. Uh, yet you, you look around and you see that this, this wokeness phenomenon has international appeal. Uh, Black Lives Matter became uh, a kind of worldwide, um, development, uh, protest movement. Um, you know, I, I, I Premier League soccer players were, uh, until quite recently, uh, taking the knee before the game, uh, the games, uh, sort of recognizing the death of George Floyd, which had happened in America, of course. Um, so, you know, and, and there's been inc- incidents of this kind of uh, protest behavior in France and other European countries. So, you know, w- what is going on here is, and, and why is this kind of export from America uh uh, finding such support in various different locales that you wouldn't think would be paying such close attention to what's going on in America? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And unfortunately, I don't think there's one straightforward answer. But just to really reiterate what you've just said there, it wasn't just at football matches that we had people taking the knee. Um, so my hometown of Middlesbrough is a very industrial, uh, very deprived, socially deprived area in the northeast of England. Um, as far removed from America as you, well, parts of America anyway, as, as you could just about get. And um, yeah, people were out in the council, um, council workers were out in the, the town square there, uh, kneeling and uh, protesting the killing of George Floyd. And that really brought home to me just how utterly bizarre this, this whole kind of transatlantic global phenomenon was because it's not as if a town like Middlesbrough doesn't have its own problems. It's not as if a town like Middlesbrough doesn't even have its own history of, of problems with multiculturalism and, and racism and integration and a whole heap of, of issues that it would be 
very appropriate for people to be taking this to the streets, perhaps to to protest about. Um, what what we don't have in Middlesbrough actually is a, a black diaspora. We tend to have people from um, Asian backgrounds. There's an Asian diaspora, Pakistani heritage diaspora in Middlesbrough, but there isn't um, a, a large black group of people there. Uh, and we certainly do not have a problem with police killings in the UK. You know, very, very few people die in police custody. Our police are not routinely armed. So it seemed utterly bizarre to be um, importing this global protest movement to a place that was so far removed and, and a problem that was so far removed from the issues that we are facing. But, but as to why, you know, I think obviously social media plays a role. It's become a bit of a cliche perhaps to say that now, but I think the the speed with which um, movements like this can um, travel around the world has obviously um, become uh, accelerated through 24-hour news cycles and social media. I think both of those play a part, but I think at risk of, of kind of trivializing what went on, I think it, it it was fashionable, you know, it became fashionable for a, an elite group of people. And even in a town like Middlesbrough, there clearly is a social elite of people who are working for the local authority, often working for the local council, who are paid essentially by the state and who are managing um, what's going on in a town like that. And, and it became a way for them to signal their knowledge of world events, their awareness of, of what was going on. And the fact that they, as, as they would put it, I wouldn't choose to put it this way, but they would put it at the fact that they were on the right side of history. And I think it was much more about sending a message to fellow citizens uh, within the UK by by showing that, that this one group of people is clued into the injustices that are taking place around the world, uh, particularly in America, but, but it also by distinguishing themselves, by showing that they have far more in common with global elites in the US uh, than they do with the citizens of their own town in the UK. Uh, an interesting question that's emerged among people who study the, this kind of thing, social thinkers who are exploring wokeness, is is what exactly it is, what kind of phenomenon it is. So some, you know, uh, John McWhorter is a good example, uh, who often writes for City Journal. Um, he, he views it in a recent book as, as a fundamentally religious movement in a way. Uh, you know, that the woke think of themselves as an elect who believe in uh, the mystical force of oppression and, you know, that that they're clued into uh, the deeper reality. Um, uh, you know, others say it's it's been something that's emerged out of institutional history in America, so out of corporate human resources departments or civil rights law. And then there's another current that says, you know, this is this is something that has uh, radiated out of the academy um, and into mass awareness. So I wonder, you know, just to drill down a little bit, what's your view of where wokeness uh, comes from? I think all three of those explanations have a great deal going for them. And I certainly see a lot of, of parallels with religion and, and would share a great deal of what uh, John McVert has said there. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think, like I said, I think, I think to some extent, all three of those, but I think one problem is when we uh, raise this question of where has all this come from, we're looking for uh, positive trends in society, kind of things that might have happened, um, 
uh, things that have, have impacted upon the world, if you like, or, or um, political developments or, or social developments. And I actually think in some ways it's a response to an absence. Um, so just to explain what I mean by that a little bit, I think if you look at universities or religion, uh, for example, or policing or um, even uh, kind of capitalist enterprises, businesses, it seems to me that so many of these um, institutions or organizations have really lost sense with what their core purpose was intended to be. So to me, if you think about schools or universities, the institutions I'm most familiar with, having a kind of a, a love of knowledge, a desire to pass on to the next generation, a real sense of um, what's valuable that, that humans know, about the world, I'm aware I'm using quite kind of grand and elaborate language there that's perhaps far removed from the mundane reality of what actually happens in schools. But I mean, so I began my career as an English teacher and I guess what, what drove me was a love of literature and, and I really wanted to be able to pass my love of reading, my love of, of literature onto another generation. But I, I think what's happened over you know, this is over a number of decades, I would really trace this process right the way back to the 1940s, 1950s, really to the end of the Second World War. As as institutions have become really hollowed out of that sense of purpose, they've, they've had to look for something to replace it with. You know, you, you can't have a school that is pointless. So we look for other things. It might be to teach employability skills or, um, you know, it might be to protect children's mental health or boost their self-esteem. But but you create a vacuum at the heart of all these institutions when you no longer have your, no longer have any belief in your original sense of purpose of what you were set up for. And I think woke values come in then as, as this kind of quite neat, quite easily understandable, really, um, easy to comprehend, black and white, essentially, and almost literally in terms of race, um, way of, of viewing the world that, that can make a, a certain sense to people who buy into this uh, and, and actually gives them a moral agenda. I mean, I think quite a depraved and bankrupt moral agenda, but, but does give a moral agenda to people who are purposeless in feel purposeless in their lives or or institutions that feel as if they lack any sense of of mission so i think we need to really look at the role that that an old elite have have played if you like in opening the door to um new woke elites to come in and and really take over everything from art galleries, museums, the film industry, um, as I say, kind of business enterprise uh, and all of these things. I mean, even uh, the question I often get asked is, is, you know, why do businesses go woke? I mean, surely the number one aim of a business is to, to make money. And how is that compatible with being woke? But I think even on that very, very fundamental level of having the aim of, of making profit, I think people can't make the case for that in its own terms anymore, you know, to actually just say, you know, I actually just really want to make loads of money and, and be successful is something that people are, are, seem to be very embarrassed about doing. And so if you look at, I guess, Ben and Jerry's ice cream or but Coca-Cola, Nike, they're all at it, actually kind of hiding that aim of making lots of money behind a smokescreen of saying, well, we want to um, save the world and um, be anti-racist as well. 
actually gives you that moral mission that you feel as if you are lacking if you just make money. Um, I wonder, you know, how has the book been received uh, since since it was published? What, when did it come out exactly? And, oh, so uh, in the UK, it came out at the end of May, um, but it just came out in the US uh, last month, just in September. And and what was the UK reception like? Well, you know, were you were you getting a hearing for these uh, these arguments? Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately very very frustrating um, because well, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, frustrating but not surprising um, that the response I've had from it sounds patronizing to say ordinary readers, just regular people who've heard about the book on on social media or through some of the articles that I write. I have to say it's been incredibly positive. Um, very, I'm very grateful to people who've got in touch to say how much they've enjoyed the book and, and it certainly seems to have sold lots of copies. So I'm absolutely delighted about that. But I, I, the frustrating but not surprising bit perhaps is that the mainstream media um, have shied away, I, I think, from covering it. Um, and and it it's not being reviewed in the major publications and at risk of sounding conspiratorial I don't think that's because they don't know that the book exists I think there's just a decision made at some level consciously or unconsciously that rather than actually engaging with these arguments it's far better just to ignore it and hope it goes away and not give it the oxygen of publicity I'd like to just turn to a couple of these uh, these recent pieces you've done for City Journal, which are certainly related to the themes of the book. Um, the first uh, kind of builds off of what you were just saying, that uh, the publishing industry has changed in the woke era. And uh, I, you know, I wonder what your broad view is of how things are going on in the world of books. Yeah, I think publishing is probably one of the best examples of all of this. It, it really seems to have been captured by um, woke values, people who espouse woke beliefs. And I think it's a real threat to freedom of speech, which I guess is one of my fundamental uh, driving principles, because it, it makes it very, very difficult to get a book out there, a book that does go against the grain and, and does push back to some extent against woke values. And you can see this at all, level of, all levels of the publishing industry, from trying to secure a, a, an agent, a literary agent, to securing a publisher, to having your book stocked um, in bookshops, to uh, having it appear on online, again, right through to the end, as we're just saying, to having your book reviewed. And I think one thing that's very interesting and, and seems to be more stark, perhaps in relation to publishing than in, in perhaps some other sectors, is a generational divide that emerges um, between uh, younger people who are making their careers in publishing, who seem to me to be at the forefront of championing woke values, and perhaps slightly older um, people working in this sector who have, it seems, more of a sense, if they don't actively um, disagree necessarily with work values, but have more of an awareness of the importance of free speech and the intellectual importance to publishing of, of being able to have a, a kind of diverse range of views out there. But I, I also think just it's just worth saying some of the arguments that are used by um, younger people who we've seen, particularly in relation to, I think it's Hachette that publishes Jordan Peterson. In the UK, it's Bloomsbury who publishes J.K. Rowling. Uh, the, the kind of the arguments that are put forward by junior staffers who don't want to have to work on these books is, is a kind of language of emotional pain and distress. And 
you just think, come on, you know, get a grip. You're paid to do a job here. <laughs> and exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, your, your other piece uh, was quite interesting. It was on the question of the earnings dynamics between men and women. And uh, in particular, this, this idea of the gender pay gap. In your view, as you, you state in the piece, the media celebrate the financial rewards of being female, single, and childless, childless while expressing outrage about uh, allegedly underpaid women with kids. So, you know, why, why don't you just uh, give us the, the short version of the argument of that piece as well? Yeah, so if you look at the statistics in both the US and the UK, uh, up until about uh, the, the mid-30s, that there isn't a really any gender pay gap worth speaking of up until people hit, their, their, like I said, their mid-30s. Uh, and often in major cities in the US, and I think throughout most parts of the UK now, uh, younger women, women in their 20s especially, and in their early 30s, are actually earning more than men. And I think one point I wanted to make was just how little that narrative is actually put out there. It, it doesn't fit uh, the dominant feminist story at the moment, uh, which is that women are, are victimized, women are oppressed. You know, the, there's this patriarchy conspiring against women in the workplace, uh, which is what we're all supposed to assume is is the reality. Uh, and actually looking at the statistics completely challenges that. And I think it's really not helpful, particularly for younger women who are just leaving work, just, end, oh, sorry, just leaving education about to enter the workforce to constantly be told that they are going to be victimized and oppressed when they start work. You know, I think actually telling younger women, do you know what, the world's not a bad place and um, actually you're going to do all right, I think is is not a bad thing to do at all. But I think the the flip side to this is then obviously the reason why a gender pay gap opens up when women hit their mid-30s is because that's the the point at which women are tending to become parents, either having their first child or, you know, having more than one child at that point. So it's not a, a gender pay gap, it's a motherhood pay gap. And this is obviously often spoken of as a, a penalty. And I also just really wanted to push back on that idea because I think what's going on, and, and certainly in my own experience, the experience of the other women I know, is that actually what, what's happening at that point in women's lives is they're really making a choice, you know, and they're, they're not making this choice on their own or even making this choice kind of as women, in inverted commas. They're making this choice in families um, with their partners, taking into consideration the kind of broader uh, aspects of their lives about you know, not even necessarily to leave work altogether, but to perhaps cut back on their hours, um, to not go for the promotion that might mean a lot of traveling, you know, just to change their priorities in life. And the fact is that for a lot of women, I don't think that is a negative thing. I don't think it is a, a penalty, which is how it's discussed. You know, it can actually be quite a positive thing. And it's something that women are, are wanting to do because, they're choosing to have be able to spend time with their children and might only be for a few years you know but but this is something that they want to do but but again i think that the kind of the dominant media narrative about a penalty um just makes it seem like it's a much more negative thing and it taps in i think to our general kind of cultural consensus that that the family and and having children is really a burden um rather than you know, a privilege and a pleasure. 
Yes, it's a, it's a theme that uh, one of City Journal's writers, Kay Heimowitz, has written about uh, in the past as well. Um, I, I, a last question, Joanna, just about uh, your think tank, uh, KEO, it's spelled uh, C-I-E-O. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what that's about? Yeah, so really its uh, aim is to provide a, a bit of a platform for academics or just anybody really who's got something interesting to say that that's not getting um, an opportunity. So, so going back to what we were saying earlier about the publishing industry, I just really wanted to to really get some different voices out there. I think uh, so my, my own background, like I said, I started as a school teacher, but I then worked 12 years in a university and um, spent some time working in, in London, in Westminster, in think tanks. And you realize there are an awful lot of very frustrated people out there, um, particularly academics who, you know, I, I'm the first to criticize. Uh, but the ones I know and like um, do uh, actually are aware of, of the problems that there are in universities right now. And, and no more are those problems kind of highlighted than in academic publishing, where even at best it can take a couple of years to have a, a piece peer-reviewed um, and published in one of the top journals. And if you're wanting to actually make an impact with your work, you don't want to have to wait two years for something to actually be published. You want to engage in debates which are taking place right now and make an impact that way. Um, but also, just to provide a platform where people are not constrained by either the woke strictures of a discipline um, that the peer review system, um, I discuss this a lot in my book, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity. The peer review system was set up for very, very good reasons. You know, it's, it provides a, a check on knowledge and um, through debate with your peers. I mean, essentially, that's how knowledge advances. But the problem is when you have groupthink in academia, the peer review system completely falls flat. It doesn't uh, serve as a, a means of advancing knowledge. It actually serves as a way of curtailing knowledge and uh, it stops new ideas coming to the fore and, and only um, reinforces ideas that are already out there. It confirms rather than challenges the consensus. So again, you know, what I wanted to do with Kia was to look at how we can get ideas out there which are, are not necessarily hitting mainstream of, of academic publishing or think tanks. Uh, or it's very important that we're not aligned to any particular political party either and maintain a genuine um, and hopefully rigorous uh, intellectual and political independence. Well, thank you very much. Uh, our guest today has been Joanna Williams. Uh, she's the author of a new book, How Woke Won, The Elitist Movement That Threatens Democracy, Tolerance, and Reason. Um, you can check out her work for City Journal on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to her author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as I usually say, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. Joanna, very nice to talk with you and thank you for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.